This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestofleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the context and history that preceded the U.S. cancellation of the Iran nuclear agreement and the role of Benjamin Netanyahu has played throughout. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, Citations Needed, Intercepted, Start Making Sense, and the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. European nations are scrambling to save the landmark nuclear agreement with Iran one day after President Trump announced he would pull the United States out of the deal and reimpose sanctions on Iran. We have also consulted with our friends from across the Middle East. We are unified in our understanding of the threat and in our conviction that Iran must never acquire a nuclear weapon. After these consultations, it is clear to me that we cannot prevent an Iranian nuclear bomb under the decaying and rotten structure of the current agreement. The Iran deal is defective at its core. If we do nothing, we know exactly what will happen. In just a short period of time, the world's leading state sponsor of terror will be on the cusp of acquiring the world's most dangerous weapons. Therefore, I am announcing today that the United States will withdraw from the Iran nuclear deal. The 2015 agreement was worked out by the United States, five other world powers, and Iran. Former President Obama described uh, Trump's decision to withdraw as a serious mistake and warned it could lead to another war in the Middle East. Uh, Iranian President Hassan Rouhani uh, responded by saying Iran would continue to abide by the agreement and would not renew its nuclear program for now. Trump's decision was praised by Israel and U.S. allies in the Gulf, including Saudi Arabia, but widely criticized across much of the world. Earlier today, the top European Union diplomat, Federica Mogherini, urged the international community to stick to the Iran nuclear deal despite Trump's decision. The nuclear deal with Iran is the culmination of 12 years of diplomacy. It belongs to the entire international community. It has been working, and it is delivering on its goal, which is guaranteeing that Iran doesn't develop nuclear weapons. The European Union is determined to preserve it. We expect the rest of the international community to continue to do its part to guarantee that it continues to be fully implemented for the sake of our own collective security. Let me conclude with a message to the Iranian citizens and leaders to each and every one of them. Do not let anyone dismantle this agreement. It is one of the biggest achievements diplomacy has ever delivered, and we have built this together. 
We are joined right now by two guests, Trita Parsi, founder and president of National Iranian American Council, most recent book, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy, and Medea Benjamin, co-founder of Code Pink. Her brand-new book is titled Inside Iran, The Real History and Politics of the Islamic Republic of Iran, also author of Kingdom of the Unjust, Behind the U.S.-Saudi Connection. We welcome you both to Democracy Now!, Trita Parsi. Let's begin with you. So, President Trump said he would do this repeatedly. John Bolton has said for years he wanted to bomb Iran. Um, and now, yesterday at 2 Eastern time, President Trump made the announcement he's pulling out of the agreement. The significance of this for Iran and for the world. I think we need to stop underestimating Trump. People didn't think that he was going to win the elections. He did. People didn't think that he would pull out of Paris. He did. People didn't think that he would— um, uh, dismantle many of these other agreements that he's been talking about, and he has done that. And now he has also walked out of the Iran deal. He imposed a Muslim ban. Uh, all of the things that he said that he would do, he has done. And as a result, we should be very careful not to underestimate the risk of war now, mindful of the warlike language that Trump now has begun to use with John Bolton standing right behind him. I think this is an extremely dangerous situation, much more dangerous than we had in 2011 and 2012, because even though the United States was inching closer to a war with Iran back then, and Iran was uh, moving forward with its nuclear program, back then there was still an diplomatic option that had not been exhausted. And there was political will on both sides to pursue that diplomatic option. Trump has eliminated all diplomatic options, and he clearly doesn't have any political will to pursue diplomacy. So as we are now back into a situation in which we're inching closer to a war, we're in a worse situation because we don't see any exit ramps. Uh, and, and, Trita, one of the aspects of this is not only that he's pulling the United States out of the agreement, but that also the threats to punish uh, European companies uh, who then violate sanctions, uh, reimpose sanctions by the United States. The impact of this on the uh, other U.S. allies. Well, the impact of that will be that it will become very difficult for the rest of the world to essentially ensure that this deal survives, because even if the governments make something that many people don't expect them to be able to do, which is to actually put forward blocking mechanisms and counter sanctions in order to protect their companies so they can continue to trade with Iran because that trade is legal. Even if they do that, there's a very high likelihood that many of the companies will choose not to enter the Iranian market because they don't want to lose access to the American market. As a result, the Iranians will not end up getting what they have been promised as a result of them restricting their nuclear program. So there's a great difficulty seeing how this deal can survive unless there is a massive international mobilization to make sure that these extraterritorial sanctions imposed by the United States on the rest of the world, including on U.S. allies, are just completely rejected on the principle that the United States is not in a position to pass laws on other countries.
The Iran deal, which was a multilateral deal, I mean, which, again, is said in the press, but I think not really always absorbed by the intended targeted audiences. Um, it's not a American-Iranian deal about Iran's yeah. nuclear program and the sanctions levied against it. This is a multinational, multilateral deal involving the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, which are the US, Russia, China, France, and Great Britain, all of which have nuclear weapons. Also yeah. Germany and the European Union, which was a major party to the negotiations and affirmed then by the UN Security Council. So this is a multilateral framework that uh, basically puts limits on Iran's civilian nuclear energy producing program. It caps enrichment at a certain level, energy-only levels, not anywhere close to weaponization. It puts inspectors, uh, international inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which you'll hear about a lot, the IAEA, um, which is often referred to as an aside, a personal pet peeve of mine, is that the IAEA is always referred to as the UN nuclear watchdog, and it's actually an independent agency. It's not the UN's agency. It works in concert with the UN, but it's not the UN. In addition, the role of the IAEA is to make sure that the countries uh, who, which have safeguarded nuclear programs, so that means countries with nuclear programs and safeguards agreements with the IAEA, uh, and safeguards means that their programs will be monitored and inspected and made sure that they do not uh, divert any nuclear material to military use. And that's all the IAEA is supposed to do. It's not about to determine, you know, what countries are doing on their military facilities. There's not what they're doing in the halls of government making decisions. It is not to arbitrate any of that. It is to solely make sure that the nuclear material, the enriched uranium usually, the nuclear material that a country holds is doing the thing that it's supposed to do, so, which is, so what exactly which is did simply the, producing energy. For, what exactly did the Iran deal So do? the Iran deal put in inspectors to facilities that had not previously been covered in the safeguards agreement. So if I can back up for a bit, Iran is a party to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which is a 1969 treaty that almost the entire world has agreed to. Iran is an original signatory. It has had a safeguards agreement in place with the IAEA since 1974. And has never been found to divert any of its material to a weapons program. So all nuclear facilities, facilities that have a role in the nuclear program, so that's enrichment facilities and nuclear reactors usually, mm-hmm. are already inspected. Have had, you know, IAEA inspectors, surveillance cameras, 24-hour uh, video, routine inspections. There have even been, you know, snap inspections, which are, you know, on a few hours notice, uh, inspectors coming in. This has been the case for now over a decade, mm-hmm. about a decade and a half. And even before that, the program was routinely inspected already by international inspectors. So what the deal does is it expands beyond what any other country has ever allowed inspectors to supervise, to monitor, to interrogate. It allows inspectors unprecedented access to every single step of the Iranian uh, nuclear fuel 
chain. So that's from the mining facilities that are taking uranium uh, straight out of the ground, you know, before it's been enriched, before it's in gaseous form, when it's literally rocks. Basically, no other country on Earth allows inspectors to to see this part because they're rocks. Those are not nuclear weapons. That's part of a scientific process that, that hasn't even approached anything dangerous. And so stuff like that, where now inspectors are seeing every single step along the way. But even before that, as I mentioned, the Iranian program was already the most inspected program on the planet well before, years before this Iran nuclear deal. So what the deal does is Iran has now allowed unprecedented access. Because it's being it's effectively being extorted. Right, it's exactly. It's wrecking its economy, it's affecting its medical Well, so the other side the, so the other side of the deal is that the sanctions that have been levied on Iran, both uh, internationally, so like by the UN, uh, as well as the nuclear related sanctions from the United States, the unilateral ones, the ones that not only cut off trade with Iran, which the U.S. doesn't even have, but then punishes other countries mm-hmm. for having trade with Iran, just like out of spite. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those sanctions were supposed to go away. Most of them have. Some of them still haven't. And then there's all these supplemental sanctions that they just do for the fuck of it. Exactly. That, that are that, just copying and pasting like, you know, APAC press releases and calling right, it. Right. It's just mindless. Precisely. And it's all basically... <laughs> we this could be show number one out of 27 but it's all basically to punish iran for being an independent state for not bowing down to what the united states tells it to do so we're gonna play a clip here real quick actually this is elizabeth warren giving the quote-unquote liberal progressive argument yeah. for the and this the, is really important for us to get into right what she does is she by doing this she's smuggling in a lot of very right-wing ideas mm-hmm. that we have to inherently have an aggressive posture towards iran that somehow we are by definition always at war with them and that they're sinister and they're out to get us in two. And most importantly, as it pertains to this podcast, is that if we somehow don't have these extortionary ultra inspections on top of inspections on top of inspections, mm-hmm. that they're going to have a nuclear weapon if we don't sure. do that. So but again, both of these are deeply ideological assumptions that there's not really any basis for. But yeah. this is, by the way, our progressive candidate. Right. So let's listen to her little commercial she posted on her Twitter feed a couple days ago. It's a simple question. Do we want Iran to have a nuclear weapon or not? The answer, no. So why is President Trump trying to make it easier for Iran to get a nuclear weapon? Look, the Iranian government is not our friend. They support terrorism. They destabilize the part of the world that they are in. But it's a whole lot easier to deal with an Iran that doesn't have nuclear weapons than it is to deal with an Iran that has nuclear weapons. Okay, so there's a lot of garbage in there. This is our progressive candidate for 2020. Yeah. I'm so excited. The- <laughs> right? It has the J Street talking points to the fucking P. I mean, the fact that Iran is now destabilizing the neighborhood that it's in, which is, the remember, that. where Iran is, is where the United States has invaded it's, 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 numerous it's, countries. It is the equivalent of Iran invading Canada and Mexico and then browbeating us for destabilizing the region. Exactly. We, we invaded the country both to their northeast and to their southwest. That's exactly right. And meanwhile, Iran is a country that has not invaded another country in over 300 years. Yeah. They'll make <laughs> some exotic argument about Hezbollah, but whatever. Yeah. That's also not invasion. But um, right. they're the baddies and they have malice intent. 
Well, not only that, but it is easy to tear apart right-wing, hawkish, neocon yeah. arguments about Iran as being imperial, as being overblown, as being on behalf of Israel, as being all of these things, right? You can kind of look at the commentary magazine, um, Weekly Standard, Washington Post editorial board, Wall Street Journal. Uh, all that shit is kind of obvious anti-Iran propaganda, and it all makes sense because of the partisan aspect of it, right? Mm -hmm. One of the real problems is that the liberal side, let's say, the big D democratic side, falls into exactly the – they use the same framework to make their arguments yes. that the conservatives do, that the neocons do. And therefore, that's how these dominant narratives are perpetuated. It's, they're, it's, they're bipartisan. Right, because there is a consensus – in these talking points, that Iran is a threat, is the big bad actor uh, in a dangerous neighborhood. It's not the colonial one. It's not the expansionist one. And yet, you know, Iran is the huge threat, right? Always. And so basically, just like in that Elizabeth Warren clip, the United States must do whatever it can to prevent Iran from building a nuclear weapon. Again, this is never challenged, really. Ever. Like Iran, I mean, CNN and MSNBC, the no, debate, right. again, the Overton window is... How do we sanction and punish Iran for the crime of existing outside of our direct control right. versus how do we bomb them? That's the spectrum as this, right? This is the classic Dorothy Parker. We have all the opinions from A to mm -hmm. B. Well, right. That anything below overt regime change is woke and good. Right. Exactly. Is the liberal stance that, that Iran must be contained, deterred, pushed back. I mean, this is gross. The stuff Elizabeth Warren says is gross. And then meanwhile, you have someone like Bernie Sanders, right, who is the only person in the Senate other than Rand Paul to oppose the Iran sanctions, mm -hmm. both as it relates to the packaging with Russia and they had some sort of um, formal vote. This was back sure. in, uh, that was this summer. Um, and Sanders doesn't demagogue as much, but he'll, they said the same thing, like this prevents a, nu a nuclear Iran. The assumption being is that they want one. I get that it's a convenient talking point, right? Well, this is what liberals always do. They always take the right wing premise and they try to like spin it like they're clever. But here's the thing. They have to. And here's why. Because without adhering to that general narrative of Iran is a threat and Iran wants nukes, the nuclear deal doesn't make sense. So right. they need to sell the nuclear deal, which I think has a lot of merits. It's a good thing to it's like de-escalate. Yeah, it's things, worth defending right? if you want to de-escalate. Like, it's like um, with ACA. It's worth defending because it's better than the crummy right far right alternative, but right. it's still shit. Well, and it's still based on a completely false premise. Like right. the United or, or States, or rather a premise that we we haven't really actually ever interrogated. Like again, it's possible that you know Iran's plotting to build a nuclear bomb and shit. But like, which would be the slowest plot of all fucking time? <sighs> Other, the only thing slower would be would be Saudi reform, <laughs> uh, Saudi seven thousand year reform plan. But no, it's again, this is when it, it's the fact that we never even talk about it. Because if mm -hmm. someone wants to make the argument that Iran has malice intentions, like fine, like show me your evidence. But it's just taken for granted. It's mm -hmm. just. It's just an axiom. It's just a thing that exists. Right. And so the Obama administration did this as well. Um, its backers of the deal, shops like Plowshares Fund, all use this narrative to pat ourselves on the back about accomplishing this deal. If the deal does anything other than prevent Iran from, from getting a nuclear weapon, then what's the point of it, right? Like, you need to start with the premise of Iran wants a nuclear weapon to then congratulate right. yourself for stopping that thing. So what the deal does, as far as these liberal talking points goes, is it accomplishes the thing 
that needed to be accomplished. Whereas Iran looks at it like, yeah, yeah, sure. So we just agreed to do the thing that we were doing anyway. And so take the fucking sanctions off uh, and like treat us like a normal sovereign country, which we are. But there has to be this humiliating process of like inspecting them, which of course is deeply humiliating because we would never, 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 never let a foreign government inspect our our nuclear systems, let alone our weapons ones, right? Assuming Mm -hmm. that that's the assumption that they have them. So a kind of a perfect encapsulation of of how um, the liberal talking points just mirror and then reinforce the more hawkish talking points that they just wind up being the same thing right. uh, with the end goal as being everything just short of troops on the ground. Um, yeah. So people like Anne-Marie Slaughter. Ah, yes, Anne-Marie Slaughter. Of Libya liberation fame, who hasn't written about Libya in six years. Indeed. So she was a top advisor to the Hillary Clinton State Department. Right. And has since moved back into like the liberal think tank world. No America Foundation. Right. Which she runs. So when she's written in support of the Iran deal, just like the Elizabeth Warren ad that we heard, it's in support of the deal, but it uses all of these false facts to entrench the reasons for support. So, you know, Anne-Marie Slaughter, a number of years ago, wrote this article in USA Today where she actually said that what the deal did was remove the, quote, stockpiled plutonium and highly enriched uranium from Iran. And that was seen as a positive thing. I mean, because that sounds those, like a those, pretty those things sound sounds evil like a positive and, thing. And those malicious. things sound really scary. The fact of the matter is that Iran never had any stockpiled plutonium. Never actually produced one atom of it ever, so what was she and never about? had any highly enriched uranium. She was just wrong. But those Did are talking call points. Her on it? Yeah, I called her on it, and she responded to me when I called her on that, and saying that the point about the stockpiles is right, but that she was writing quickly. She said that, you know, look, she was she was writing to support the deal with Iran. Oh, yeah. And that writing for a mass audience does not require a lot of nuance. So she and just lied. So she literally didn't care about her lies. Right. Like they were called there was, out. There was some greater truth. And the greater truth is that, look, she was in support of the deal. The hoi polloi doesn't know fuck yeah, all it's, about it's any this great, of this. It's this great propaganda scam where... The liberal position must actually does all the heavy lifting to, exactly. to set up this idea because we have to come up with this compromise mm-hmm. of not going to war. That was just something we made up in the first place anyway. Right. It's, a fa- only, it's a false market. It's, only, it's a protection racket. Again, the only th- people threatening war with Iran were the United States and Israel. Iran was never threatening war yeah. with anyone else. So the idea that war was imminent ever, which was, was never something. a reality, was always just the United States might start dropping bombs on people. Like, first off, that's not a fucking war. Right. Secondly, Iran was never the one threatening anyone with military action. Like, that is a canard. It's garbage bullshit. And so the idea that, like, this deal staved off war just means, like, it was a way for the United States to stop making the threats, which then obviously lasted about a year and a half. The year is 1986. A former nuclear technician from a Middle Eastern nation has taken secret documents from his clandestine worksite, and he goes to London, England, to meet with a reporter from the Times of London. They talk at length, and the nuclear technician lays out an incredible tale of how this Middle Eastern country 
has been secretly building up a nuclear arsenal and that it was actually in possession of a substantial number of nuclear weapons. At the time, that country was denying to the world that it had a nuclear program. But the whistleblower had photos and evidence and his own testimony that would prove that this Middle Eastern nation had been systematically lying about its nuclear capabilities and its large quantity of weapons. Because I worked in that place and I knew a lot about what they are doing there, I concluded that they producing too much atomic bomb beyond any imagination of all the world's spy organization, including the CIA. My conclusion from my production is they are producing about 10 atomic bombs every year. And they have around 200 atomic bombs. It's, it's too much, and I decide the world must know. Shortly before the story was published, journalists from the Times of London confronted this Middle Eastern government in question with the information that it received from one of its own secret nuclear technicians. Here was someone who'd said he'd worked right inside the plutonium separation plant helping to fabricate atomic weapons, who had taken photographs of the machinery and who had lots of information about how much material was being processed and so on, and, uh, and therefore he was potentially going to be able to provide incontrovertible evidence. This Middle Eastern government denied the allegations made by its former technician to the Times, and they said it was all lies, that this was a disgruntled and deranged individual who, by the way, was a low-level employee who had no real expertise. But secretly, that Middle Eastern government was in a panic. They had already heard from an informant about this technician's meetings with journalists. The notorious spy agency from that nation had its psychologists study the man in question and develop a profile that would allow them to target this whistleblower. And they hatched a plot to kidnap him. But they needed to get this former technician out of London, out of the UK. This government did not want to anger then-British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. So they turned to an old trick, a honeypot trap. An operative from this Middle Eastern country's spy agency flew to London and posed as an American tourist named Cindy. She was armed with psychological information about the former nuclear technician and had been prepped on how to get close to him. He was lonely and seeking companionship, female companionship. It didn't take long for Cindy to convince this former technician that she was drawn to him, that she needed to be with him. And when she suggested that they take a nice little vacation to Italy in the fall of 1986, he agreed. They flew to Rome, got in a taxi, and went to a rented apartment. There, the former technician was snatched by spies from the government's intelligence service. He was drugged and thrown in a van. He was then taken to a port, put into a speedboat, and ultimately whisked away to a military vessel that was posing as a merchant ship just off the coast of Italy. A month later, the Times of London published its story. He'd met an American woman in Leicester Square who seemed to like him. He was vulnerable and afraid. When she suggested he'd be safer with her in Rome, he fell for it. It was a classic honey trap. He was overpowered, assaulted, and drugged. For weeks, no one knew where he was. 
That former technician who was kidnapped in Italy was ultimately prosecuted in his home country. It was a secret trial, and he was convicted of treason and aggravated espionage, among other charges. He is the most uh, sensitive prisoner that this country's got, and uh, whenever he comes here, they block off the windows of his van if they can, or they... In the early days, they used to put a, a crash helmet over him so people couldn't see him. And at one point, they even had a, a, an electronic device that emitted a screeching signal so people couldn't hear him speak. That technician was sentenced to 18 years in prison, and he would end up serving 11 years in solitary confinement. But because of this man and his sacrifice, the world now knew that this Middle Eastern country had been lying for years about its nuclear program. That whistleblower was named Mordecai Venunu, and the country whose nuclear program he exposed was Israel. This is former Israeli Prime Minister Shimon Peres talking about Mordecai Venunu's actions in an interview with the BBC. He was the traitor to his country. So what was your reaction? Very negative. What did you do? What I thought should be done. Which was what? To put him to trial. Kidnap him. Uh, my lady, I can't go into all the processes. I'm unwilling. I don't see any reason to do so. The fact is that he was brought to trial. This was not Iraq. This was not Iran. This was Israel. Keep that in mind. Keep this story in mind as you listen to Benjamin Netanyahu and all of the right-wing pundits on cable news and in newspapers taking his claims about Iran at face value. There is one massive nuclear power in the Middle East with the ability to wipe countries off the map, and that nation is Israel. And the reason we know about that is because of Mordechai Venunu. I feel it's very bad what I, what they did, and I think they did the same to many things they did to me, but in Israel they did it very secret. On Monday night, the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, held a live, globally televised event that bizarrely looked like an early 2000s Steve Jobs presentation. Netanyahu stood in front of a giant screen, which was broadcasting a PowerPoint presentation, summarizing scores of what Netanyahu said were internal documents seized from Iran by Israeli intelligence. These documents, Netanyahu told the world, proved beyond a doubt that Iran has nuclear weapon ambitions. Iran lied. Big time. After signing the nuclear deal in 2015, Iran intensified its efforts to hide its secret nuclear files. In 2017, Iran moved its nuclear weapons files to a highly secret location in Tehran. This is the Shorabad district in southern Tehran. This is where they kept the atomic archives. Now, a lot of people speculate that Netanyahu's presentation was intended for an audience of one, Donald Trump. And the White House did respond to Netanyahu's stunt by releasing a statement to journalists. And I'm quoting here, these facts are consistent with what the United States has long known. Iran has a robust, clandestine nuclear weapons program that it has tried and failed to hide from the world 
and from its own people. (laughs) Wow. Iran has, this is what the White House statement said, Iran has a robust clandestine nuclear program. Just wow. After that statement was reported, and former U.S. officials, including former CIA officials, expressed a mixture of concern and outrage at what they said was absolutely false. And people began to question this definitive statement from the White House. Only then did the administration revise its statement to assert that Iran had such a program in the past. It is ironic, though, that the White House would also focus on Iran hiding a nuclear program from the world and its own people when Israel did just that and more. And Israel actually had nukes when they said they didn't. And they actually locked up a whistleblower who had been placed in essentially a box of solitary confinement for 11 years for the crime of warning the world of this grave danger posed by the fact that a Middle Eastern nation, Israel, had nuclear weapons. But, you know, that's how it is and how it's always been on this question when we're talking about Israel. And by the way, Netanyahu is basically the absolute last person that Americans should listen to about nuclear weapons in the Middle East. Consider just a few of Netanyahu's greatest hits. And by greatest hits, I mean flat out lies or wildly inaccurate and incorrect predictions. There is no question whatsoever that Saddam is seeking and is working and is advancing towards the development of nuclear weapons. No question whatsoever. If you take out Saddam, Saddam's regime, I guarantee you that it will have enormous positive reverberations on the region. Here's a diagram. This is a bomb. This is a fuse. In the case of Iran's nuclear plans to build a bomb. Even after the deal, Iran continued to preserve and expand its nuclear weapons know-how for future use. Those just some of Benjamin Netanyahu's hits. Today's episode is sponsored by Casper, the sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models now, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention, the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. You do spend one-third of your life sleeping, after all, you should be comfortable. You can order your with confidence backed by Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial, and it'll be delivered right to your door in an impossibly small size box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. For any kids in the house, the fun of unboxing your Casper is going to be the highlight of your week. It certainly was for me when my Casper arrived, but of course, it's the years of sleeping on the Casper since then that have brought the real joy. You can get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash best and using the offer code best at checkout. That's casper.com slash best offer code best for $50 off select mattress purchases. Terms and conditions apply. This agreement was, let me just underline here, not an agreement between the United States and Iran. It was an international agreement that involved not only Europe, but also Russia and China 
I guess we should ask what Russia and China are likely to do here. Russia and China are going to say without question that the United States violated an agreement, was the rogue state, to use a yes. term that, that the U.S. once popularized. The U.S. is a rogue state defying international norms, scuttled a international agreement that was beneficial to the world community. That's what they're going to say. They're not going to be part of any effort to renegotiate that treaty. And inevitably, we have to talk about Israel. Israel sees Iran as its, uh, you know, primary enemy in the in the region. Uh, this will undoubtedly strengthen the hardliners within Israel. What can you tell us about that situation? Now, now, when we talk about Israel, in this case, you have to narrow it down to one person, Benjamin Netanyahu, who has made it a personal crusade to sabotage the Iran nuclear deal, and he has spent the past uh, how many years trying to do that? He came before Congress in 2015 and tried to sabotage the deal, and he's been working at that ever since. So he certainly is going to be thrilled, and I'm sure he had played a hand in persuading Mr. Trump to do that. In fact, uh, Trump uh, referred to the intelligence cage that uh, Netanyahu uh, unveiled a few days ago, which supposedly claimed that uh, the Iranians were secretly pursuing a nuclear weapon uh, long after they uh, had agreed to stop any such activities. Um, the Europeans say there is nothing new in all of this, that, that Iran had stopped that long ago, and that in any case, the, the agreement uh, shut down anything they were doing, so it's irrelevant. Nonetheless, Trump referred to these materials that Netanyahu revealed a week ago. So we're really talking about Netanyahu, and I think he's thrilled by all of this. Uh, however... This is going to lead Israel on a collision course with Iran and possibly war, and I'm not sure everyone in Israel is so thrilled about that. <laughs> I think you're right. You said it was French President Macron who said this could lead to war. I wonder how. Wonder what you if you have any comment on that. Well, I said uh, at the outset that uh, really the only option left for Trump is war, and he certainly threatened that in his comments in announcing the withdrawal from the agreement. He, he said that if, if Iran moved in the direction of acquiring nuclear weapons, they would suffer unbearable consequences for that. So there's no question that he has war on his mind, and I, I think if Iran does do something that he can justifiably claim as a cause, a, a legitimate cause for attack, he will certainly order American forces to do so. So, you know, I don't want to say we're three months away, six months away, nine months away, but we're now on a path towards war.
Well, what's been in the news is the withdrawal from the Iran nuclear accord by President Donald Trump. Ironically, President Obama signed this accord without going to Congress or the Senate for confirmation as a treaty. But in Iran, the accord had to go to the Iranian parliament. Even though they have an autocratic government, they do have quite a bit of political dissent. And they had to go to the parliament. But in our country, the runaway presidential power can produce this kind of signature by executive decree and not go to the Congress. What's interesting about this Iran nuclear accord, Colonel Wilson, is that there's so many established groups supporting it and opposing President Trump. For example, our allies, Britain, France, and Germany, former secretaries of state and secretary of defense from both Republican and Democratic administrations, the existing secretary of defense, Jim Mattis, and President Trump's chief of staff, General John Kelly, and outspoken former top Israeli national security intelligence officials, all were saying to Donald Trump, don't do it. Don't withdraw from the accord. Why is he withdrawing from the accord? This is an extraordinary rejection of a whole constituency that says, stay in it. It works, and it's being complied with by Iran. Well, Ralph, first, let me just thank you for having me on today to uh, share, hopefully share some of my thoughts and experiences on what is arguably one of the most consequential decisions that has been made in recent years, maybe even recent decades. At the bottom line for me, the, the severe harm is the fact that we've actually walked away from a deal that was actually working as designed, and I'll emphasize as designed. I mean, the original Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was admittedly at the time a single-track focus on rolling back, and frankly, a delay operation on Iran's dash to attaining a viable nuclear weapon. It was intended originally to be no more than that. At the time, and in that context, it was fully understood by all parties involved, and certainly down to our operational level, at U.S. Central Command, which basically had the operational responsibilities for managing, preventing, and frankly, shaping all of the ongoing conflicts that that are taking part on the globe and basically setting conditions for the JICPOA agreement to actually have a chance of surviving implementation. No one was Pollyannish on this, and no one was looking at this through Rolls-Collard glasses as far as we were concerned. We knew this was single track. We knew this was an effort to de-escalate one of the top, if not the top, security concerns based on international and U.S. vital national interests, Iran attaining a weapon of mass destruction and the capacity for using it. But that was certainly not the only vital national interest nationally or internationally involved. And, and we were very pragmatic in knowing what the deal covered and what it did not cover. You know, stepping away from the plan without a plan B, frankly, leaves certainly the greater Middle East and the greater Levant, but frankly, the, the globe and the United States in terms of its vital national interests in a much, much worse powder keg situation than just a few hours ago. Well, President Trump didn't take any questions at his press conference. I've got the transcript in front of me, and he made a statement, and then the press started shouting questions, and all he would say is, thank you very much, thank you very much. And the question that was shouted, that was audible, was, Mr. President, how does this make America safer? How does this make America safer? And then he refused to answer any questions. The interesting aspect of this, Colonel Wilson, is that we don't start with looking at the situation the way the 
Iranian government is looking at it. They're looking at it the following way. And any diplomacy has to have the empathy to put itself in place of the opponent and see what their view is. They had their democratically elected prime minister overthrown by U.S. intelligence and support in 1953. They don't forget that because it was replaced by are installing the dictatorial Shah for 26 more years over the people of Iran. They also remember that we supported Saddam Hussein, who then was our ally, the dictator of Iraq, in invading Iran with horrendous casualties to Iranian soldiers and civilians. They also remember that George W. Bush named Iran as one of the three axis of evils, including North Korea, Iraq, and Iran. And we obliterated Iraq. So you can assume that Iran was getting a message that having encircled Iran with U.S. military forces on the west, east, and south, that they were next. So they're frightened. Regardless of what you think of the regime, they are frightened. And a lot of people in Iran are frightened that they're going to be next after the sociocide of Iraq. So why is it that we don't put ourselves in the place of Iran which sees Israel having at least 150 or 200 nuclear weapons, and which sees Israel not a member of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Agreement, which Iran is a member. Why is it that we never in the media, and just recently on NewsHour for PBS, they were interviewing Ehud Barak, former prime minister of Israel, and they never asked him about the Israeli nuclear program and its refusal to allow inspectors because it's not a member of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement. Now, as a person who studied diplomatic history, give us some sense of why our country, again and again, does not consider the way the other countries view our particular militarism and forays around the world. Ralph, thanks for the question. I've been puzzling over this, both as an operator in the field, you know, frankly, for the last 33 years during my service in uniform. And, and along the way, some stints and opportunities to actually think about this and study it as an academic. So, you know, both from a thinking perspective as well as a, from an operational doing perspective, you know, this question that you've raised, and you've given an excellent summary of some of what I would call the dark sides to American exceptionalism. You've given a phenomenal, sad and tragic quick rundown of this paradox. And for me, I think it lies in this oversimplified you know, perhaps over-Westernized, almost in a in the sense of, a, of the old Westerns, where America and those with us are wearing the white hat, and there are true-to-form white hat wearers and black hat wearers. And, you know, coming out of World War II particularly, we've allowed the American public in a representative democracy, those duly elected representatives allowed an American public to fall into a, an oversimplified sense of a world seen through the lens of black hats and white hats where, frankly, the world has always been gray. That oversimplified perspective, in my view, both opinion as well as, as uh, academic study, you know, kind of finds us as Americans, those that follow us on our, our different expeditions abroad, seeing the world in the map of the world with us almost removed from the table as an, an effective player, almost as if we are placing ourselves in a sort of a God seat where American exceptionalism is only a one-directional positive-ism, if you will, that American exceptionalism, as it is and by its nature and its character, is inherently good. As I said before, I think what we're seeing here and what you gave a great rundown on in summary is, is the darker sides to American exceptionalism. 
the darker sides to American leadership, both national leadership and American global leadership. People in whole societies and whole communities of nations can be led and will be led. Leadership is bi-directional, however. It can lead to positive places governed by values and rule of law. Unfortunately, it can equally be led in dark negative directions by tendencies of illiberalism. And what I would offer is the exact antithesis to a system based on rule of law, which includes the spirit of the law as well as the letter of the law and the importance of judgment based on ethics and moral code. That can be so easily and tragically overlooked and replaced by a governance, an approach to governance based on rule by law, which can often, as history has shown us, lead to very dark and sinister and illiberal places in illiberal ways. I think that's exactly where what, what we're dealing with. I think that the a quick survey of American global leadership, particularly since the end of the Cold War, in the absence of a clear threat in the old Soviet threat, and facing a world that was much more muddy and much more complex, unfortunately, our leaders on both and all sides of the aisle, extreme red to extreme blue, have to some degree collectively abrogated their responsibilities as the duly elected representatives of a democratic society. And the most important obligation, in my view, as a citizen of duly elected representatives of a democratic society, and that is to keep the public of those societies fully informed and in a transparent way. I think Mr. in many respects, the opposite direction and allowed, and allowed oversimplification and the opaqueness of a degree of uneducatedness on the complexities of the world, I think we've allowed that to persist for, driven by some very particular interests, if you will, namely hyper-partisanization and polarization in this country. Remind us what happened on Monday in Jerusalem and Gaza. Well, the Americans moved their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and the Israeli Defense Forces killed more than 60 Palestinian protesters. That's like the very bland version of the news. Moving the American embassy to Jerusalem, the dedication was uh, like a festival of uh, religion and American politics, it seemed to me. Yeah, well, the president didn't go. One wonders why possibly he doesn't like angry Palestinian protesters. So he sent his Jewish relatives into the fray, Ivanka Trump and her husband, Jared Kushner, as Stephen Colbert calls them, Peace Treaty Barbie and Collusion Ken. And Ivanka unveiled, as if it were a a headstone at a cemetery, Mm. she unveiled the um, plaque dedicating the Jerusalem American Embassy. Which has her father's name. Which has her father's name prominently figured. 
The audience included leaders of the Jewish right in America. Yeah, figuring largely among them was Sheldon Adelson, the Vegas mogul who's been a huge Trump supporter and really is, to my mind, single-handedly responsible for this grotesque change in, in U.S. policy. He's a giant contributor to the super PACs that funded Trump's election he supports uh, conservative super PACs both in the Congress and the Senate. And I don't mean to the tune of $1 million. I mean to the tune of 20 and $25 million for each of these super PACs. Essentially, folks, he's running your government. You could even say that there was a quid pro quo for this embassy. I'll give you $25 million. You move the embassy. He has offered also to uh, fund construction of the new embassy because this, the embassy that you saw on television is just a uh, temporary thing. They're going to build a huge American defended embassy there. And Sheldon Adelson has offered to contribute to that construction, which will be the first time a private person has ever contributed money to a U.S. government construction project if it is allowed to go through. So this is his baby, and Trump has done his bidding. I think we need a little history. Seven presidents have refused pressure to move the American embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Why is that? Because Jerusalem is a contested city. There are many contested places in the world. Jerusalem is probably the prime contested city in the world. The Palestinians claim it as theirs. The Muslims claim it as one of their holy cities. Of course, the Jews claim it as one of their holy cities, but the hard right of Israel claims it as the unified and indisputable capital of Israel. So that's why the right in Israel has always wanted the Americans to cave and move that embassy to Jerusalem. But the American presidents until now have understood that peace is absolutely impossible between the Palestinians and the Israelis if the Americans basically de facto declare Jerusalem to belong to Israel entirely. And this is not just a program of the Israeli right and the American Jewish right. There's also a Christian evangelical movement that supports right-wing Zionism. At the dedication, the opening prayer was given by a Dallas megachurch pastor who has said, quote, Mormonism, Islam, Judaism, and Hinduism lead people to an eternity of separation from God in hell— that's who Trump picked to give the opening prayer. And the closing prayer was given by one of America's most prominent end-time preachers who once said that Hitler was sent by God to drive the Jews to their ancestral homeland in Israel. He gave the closing benediction. Want to say anything about the evangelical right and their support for right-wing Zionism? You know, you couldn't have picked two better people to encapsulate the kind of Trump worldview of Israel. This is a situation where conservative fundamentalist Jewry meets conservative fundamentalist American Christianity, and they're pressing a button that is a very dangerous one. In Israel, I mean, this is absolutely, you can't de deny that this is provocative. Meanwhile, 
at the Gaza border. How far away is the Gaza border from? 40 minutes by car. 40 minutes by car. I mean, this is like you and I have a commute to school that takes longer than that. I used to go from crazy situations at checkpoints to dinner in Jerusalem. And, it you know, it's a half an hour drive. It's an amazing closeness. People don't realize how small Israel is. So meanwhile, at the Gaza fence, there's a movement now, a nonviolent mass protests of thousands and thousands of Palestinians challenging Israelis at the fence. Tell us about that. Well, this is uh, something that has been organized in advance of what's called the Nakba. The Nakba is the catastrophe, it translates as, and it is a very grim holiday every year uh, among the Palestinians where they observe the ethnic cleansing of Palestine and the replacement of the Palestinians with the state of Israel. So it's definitely an organized protest to commemorate that and to express, of course, the horror of Gaza right now. There's no clean water in Gaza. The borders are cut off. These people can't get away. Students who are brilliant and wonderful can't go abroad to study. People can't be reunited with their families, except with the permission of Israel. So to say that there's no more occupation of Gaza by Israel is actually not even true. I said this was a nonviolent mass protest. The Israelis say that their use of uh, gunfire, snipers, machine guns is justified uh, because these were not nonviolent protests. What exactly were the, the, the tactics? Were there guns? Did the, did the Palestinians come to the border with guns? Of course, the Palestinians didn't have any guns. The Palestinians almost never have a gun. There are no guns on the Palestinian side. Where would they get guns? Import them through Israel? I don't think so. The Palestinians are, though, very angry. There are many, many of them, which is a reason to freak out a little bit if you're the Israeli Defense Forces, but not a reason to shoot into a crowd. And they've been throwing some rocks and they have sent, it's just a beautiful, weird thing that they do, sending these incendiary kites into Israel. So these beautiful childish things, but with some flaming gas uh, tails on them that can start fires, which they sometimes do and sometimes don't. These don't seem to me to be reasons to use machine guns and snipers on a crowd. And throwing stones at the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, it's a very symbolic thing. Can I mention the names of David and Goliath? Yeah, David and Goliath, it's something that the Israelis always talk about, how they are Goliath, and and these are not obviously the right-wing Netanyahu people, but that how Israel is Goliath, and the Palestinians are like David, and the Palestinians are also well aware of the biblical symbolism, and the slingshot has always been the favorite weapon of the Palestinian protesters, and they wield it, and then the Israelis return unlike Goliath, with gunfire. If only Goliath had had gunfire, he would have won the battle against David. So meanwhile, at the American embassy in Jerusalem, Jared Kushner gave a speech saying, quote, peace is within reach, close quote. What's your assessment of uh, the accuracy of Jared's remarks? What can he possibly mean by peace? One of the things about any embassy being moved to Jerusalem was it was always contingent throughout the Oslo peace talks and all the attempts at peace accords. It was always contingent on there being a Palestinian state there. The Trump family, the Trump presidency, Jared Kushner and Sheldon Adelson have together taken away that prize that could have been awarded 
for peace. They've taken away one of the many uh, carrots to be given for peace talks between the two enemies. And Netanyahu, in his speech, did not say peace is, is uh, in the future. He said this is a great day for, for Israel. Israel. He's not thinking about peace with the Palestinians. He doesn't care. They can starve to death in Gaza for all he cares. Any last thoughts on the events of Monday? Well, one thing to think about is how it's in it's in the uh, Trumpian tradition, this particular event. He's pulled out of Paris. He's pulled out of the Iranian Accord. He's now moved the embassy. He does not have respect for global agreements and norms. And so what he's really doing here is making America not great. He's making America less powerful, less meaningful of a global player, showing our immature and unserious side, showing a total disrespect for American historic policy, and just putting us out of the game, except for we are still a giant superpower. So when you're the bully on the playground, people still have to pay attention to you, still have to deal with your behavior, even though you're an idiot. We've just heard clips today starting with Democracy Now! laying out the initial facts of Trump pulling out from the Iran nuclear deal. Citations Needed questioned the entire premise the deal is built on. Intercepted gave the history of Israel's secret development of nuclear weapons. Start Making Sense spoke with Michael Clare about the geopolitical fallout from the end of this deal. The Ralph Nader Radio Hour focused on the United States' seeming inability to understand how its actions will be perceived by others. And finally, we just heard Start Making Sense talking with Amy Willens about the adjacent but related story of the U.S. officially opening its embassy in the disputed city of Jerusalem while the Israeli military killed dozens and wounded hundreds of protesting Palestinians. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hey, it's Dave from Olympia, Washington. Oh, I just listened to the uh, Universal Basic Income Guaranteed Job Program. It was so good. It was interesting. It was thought-provoking. There were perspectives that I hadn't heard before. It made me think all kinds of thoughts. I'll share one, which kind of got approached in, in the last statement, but the idea of both of those topics as ways to shift the Overton window of the conversation more focused on laborers is, I think, I think super useful in a rhetorical sense. I think all of the concerns about implementation were well-founded and would have to be answered to, but I still find both of the topics to be excellent rhetorical uh, pieces. My day job, and I may have shared this, is implementing affordable water and sewer in largely rural communities. There's a lot of very conservative mayors and conservative, you know, city council people and uh, city administrators in rural Washington. And so I end up working professionally with a lot of people that are not politically necessarily in sync with me. And you can't be abrasive, but when someone's railing about the lazy slackers that need their $15 minimum wage, 
it's clarity and it can be done non-confrontational, but also just kind of ends the conversation and maybe makes them see a broader perspective. Like, well, you know, we really should have a, a guaranteed basic income and not worry so much about the minimum wage, which I'm sure is a perspective that I think most of my interlocutors never considered. So in that framework, it's still useful, but oh, such a good episode. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you again. Hi, my name is Rob from Tacoma, Washington, and I just wanted to, to mention, uh, first of all, I'm a, I'm a libertarian, and so I, I disagree with basically 99% of everything that's on this show, but I still like listening to it because I think you have a really good, uh, a lot of good thoughts, and uh, your, your thoughts are always concise and makes sense, and I have an open mind, so I'm willing to, to, to hear you out on stuff. So what I want to talk about, though, is you've mentioned on the show several times uh, the idea of uh, worker co-ops, you know, the socialist idea that the means of production should be controlled by its workers. And one thing that's never talked about is kind of a, almost a hidden cost, but the idea of risk. So you have, you have workers, like employees, one benefit they get, even though, even if it's low wages or maybe lower wages than the output that they're producing, but they have a certain amount of stability. Like sure, they can get fired if the company goes down, but you're not going to see huge swings in pay based on the company's profits. Whereas the, the owners of the company will definitely see that. They'll have to absorb all that risk themselves. And so in a uh, worker co-op, it doesn't seem like you get very many takers because, you know, employees who are not well off and don't have a, a ton of capital to invest are going to uh, need that stability in order to make ends meet. And so um, maybe there's ways around that, but I haven't heard anyone talk about it, but I'm willing to hear about it. So, that was just one quick thing I wanted to uh, see if you had any thoughts about because I'd like to I'd like to find out if there are solutions to that problem because it's never really talked about. So, anyways, thanks. Uh, I, I do listen to your your podcast a lot, so uh, keep up the good work. I appreciate what you're doing, even if I disagree. But thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. And I do have a response to our libertarian caller we just heard from. But first, I have one more voicemail to play they just need a little bit of context. I had to cut this voicemail short. It ran almost seven minutes long, but I just want to play a bit of it and respond to it real quick. Hi, my name is Jeff Epstein, and I'm a student of monetary theory. I've written a few articles on it, and I'm a student of the federal job guarantee and UBI. I wrote an article on that and did a radio interview on that. I'm from uh, just east of Philly in New Jersey, uh, next to Cherry Hill. So I listened to your podcast for the first time, and the first episode that I listened to was Federal Job Guarantee versus UBI. And almost all of it was great. Almost all of it. And then I heard the segments by the podcast, The Weeds by Vox. And these segments really made me upset. And not because I disagree with them, because, but because they are so easily refuted. Just cutting in to say that this is where I had to edit out about five minutes of quotes that Jeff reads from the show and then gives his responses to them, but I'll summarize his points afterward. I don't begrudge 
the people at the Weeds podcast from Vox for their strong disagreements and it, or their flat out smears, if that's what they happen to be. I, that's their job. That's their passion, whatever it is. That's their decision. I don't have a problem with that. But it is hard for me to understand how side by side with these great segments and these great figures that a podcast called The Best of the Left is validating and promoting this trash. Okay, so thanks, Jeff, for all of his input and the effort he put into making his argument. If you want to hear his entire message, we are linking to it in the show notes so you can still find it and hear everything he has to say. Basically, here are his complaints. The people on the weeds were too snarky. Uh, the points they were making that, uh, you know, appeared to be poking holes in a jobs guarantee policy were incredibly easy to dispute. A few examples include, you know, guy said that there's going to be stigma around these jobs because, look, you're going to go and sign up and you're going to be given a name tag that says you're a federal worker. And just like, look, that's ridiculous. Like, Obviously, we could just not have those name tags and not have the associated stigma. Uh, one guy was arguing that, like, if you are just giving people a job installing solar panels, then, you know, someone like me would just go and break a bunch of them. And that would be a ridiculous uh, job to give to someone. And Jeff's angry at the implication that a jobs guarantee program wouldn't have any sort of training involved, like you'd give people jobs and expect them to be able to do stuff. And of course, they would screw it all up. That's ridiculous. Uh, there was talk about people fresh out of prison working in childcare facilities. And so he's angry, of course, that, you know, what a, a jobs guarantee program wouldn't have any sort of filtering. It wouldn't uh, have any process in place to help place people in jobs that are suitable for them. Obviously, people fresh out of prison wouldn't be suitable for a childcare facility. That's obvious. The program would take that into consideration and so on and so on. You know, basically, they were making arguments that are easily disputed. And uh, so I, I mostly actually agree with his broad points about them being snarky, his specific points about the actual things they said, my main points for why I included them is, is actually their broad concerns. The issue of stigma, which I spoke about at length at the end of that show, and the issue of implementation problems, both political and logistical. So on one hand, it's easy to say that the system would have training and filtering and all of that. And on the other, that means like you're setting up thousands of guaranteed jobs offices staffed with people who are able to take applications and accurately place people in jobs that are suitable for them and so on. So like there are logistical questions that they raised simply, is it really feasible that the government could do that? They said like, look, it's probably not impossible, but it's probably also hard. And that's a pretty reasonable uh, concern. And then the political implementation is that conservative local governments might try to throw wrenches in your system. And so I thought those concerns were important to bring up so that you could inoculate yourself. If you're going to go forward with a, a, a policy like this, you have to build the policy so that it can't be monkeyed with by people who want to break it. So I think what I said to him directly, I sent him a message uh, on Facebook because he was also commenting there. Uh, I took their concerns more seriously than literally. The actual examples they gave, I agree with him, were not good examples. 
the broad concerns they were bringing up, I think, were interesting points that needed to be addressed. Okay, moving on to our libertarian friend, Rob from Tacoma. First of all, I'm surprised to hear him say that as a libertarian, he disagrees with 99% of what's on the show. Usually libertarians only disagree with about half and vice versa. You know, I tend to agree with about half of what libertarians say. So that was surprising. But uh, specifically today, he's talking about uh, what he describes as the hidden cost of risk that owners of companies absorb and inversely benefit from, profit from, because there is inherent instability in business owning. So for an employee, the benefit they get from not being an owner is that pay usually doesn't uh, drastically vary with the profits of the company, whereas the profits that the owner takes home may very well vary a lot depending on the profits of the company. So if profits go down, the income that the owner enjoys goes down. So he wanted me to address that in, in terms of worker co-ops, how do co-ops deal with risk? Maybe this is why people don't want to work in co-ops. I don't think he has any evidence for people not wanting to work in co-ops. He just sort of threw that out there um, as an aside. But here's my response about how co-ops deal with risk management. First of all, keep in mind that everything that happens in co-ops happens democratically. So you have to get yourself in the mindset of dealing with risk collectively. So for instance, when, when profits are high, all the people who work at the company slash own the company would decide together what to do. They could take that home as pay. They could reinvest it in the business. They could set it aside for retirement. They could hold it as liquid company assets for later, whatever. Inversely, when profits are down and maybe even layoffs are imminent, a co-op has, I'm not making this up, co-ops often vote to lower everyone's wages rather than go through layoffs. So think about that. You know, if you're talking about managing risk, when the profits take a dip, someone usually gets laid off. But in a co-op, the risk gets spread more evenly. So working together, they can decide, hey, we don't want to lay anyone off. We want to maintain the the strong bonds of the company. We we don't want to lose anyone's skills that can be put to use. You know, if profits come back, we, we want that person to be there. We don't want them to leave. So we'll actually all take a hit for now and work to turn the profits around. And then more broadly, keep in mind that there will always be more money available in a successful co-op compared with a similarly successful traditional business because co-ops never vote to allow managers, upper management to earn whatever, 300 times more than the lowest paid worker. It's usually closer to like eight to one from the lowest to, top to the highest paid in a co-op. So more equality of pay means more literal financial security for the workers and the business itself because there's just more money available. It's not being extracted by a handful of people at the top. So, uh, you know, Robbie is talking about risk as a hidden cost. And I think that's an okay way to frame risk. I understand that concept. So let's think of risk management the way the experts in risk management would think about it, an insurance company. So people pay premiums to insurance companies to hedge against risk of whatever, illness, flooding, so on. Uh, and then they get a payout in case of a disaster. 
So workers pay the equivalent of premiums to their employers in the form of lower wages. So what are they hedging against and what benefits are they receiving in return? Uh, As Rob says, there's maybe more stability in pay. But in reality, what that means is they have the stable assurance that they will be paid as little as the owner can get away with and no more. And then if a disaster does happen, if if things really do take a dip and everyone starts hurting, well, there is no windfall payout in the event of a disaster like a layoff. So to me, that sounds sort of like an insurance plan with no benefit. You just pay premiums forever and get nothing in return except the so-called promise of stability and pay. But is that really better than just getting paid more all along, you know, and then if things go really bad, then uh, everyone's out of luck, no matter whether it's a a co-op or regular business. So essentially, a regular employee compared to a co-op owner slash employee gives up uh, the right to influence how the company is managed, the right to compensation in line with the value of the work they're actually producing, which Rob pointed out, the right to equity ownership as part of their compensation package. You know, when you own the company, if the company does well, that's part of what you're earning. You actually earn the value that the company uh, holds. And they're giving up the likelihood that hard times would actually be less hard due to the nature of how co-ops manage their income distribution. Because first of all, less money is being extracted at the top. So that's more of a cushion for everyone when business turns down. And the way people vote to manage a co-op is often more favorable to the benefits of the workers in, in terms of maybe everyone takes the hit. We, we spread the hit amongst all of us and then no one gets laid off. So that's another way to manage risk. So to me, if you were to decide, no, I don't want to work on a co-op, I would rather work as a standard employee Uh, because of the risk involved, that just sounds like absolutely, completely backward, terrible risk management to me. And then just last point, uh, I wanted to highlight that Rob called worker ownership a socialist idea. That's a phrase that, uh, as I've pointed out before, sort of turns people's brains off a a lot of the time. They immediately think of like Soviet Union style socialism. And again, I know Rob's a libertarian. I don't know necessarily that a libertarian would look up to someone like Ronald Reagan, but Reagan was no socialist. And I always like to point out when I can. In the marketplace, our people benefit from direct and indirect business ownership. There are currently close to 10 million self-employed workers in the United States. That's nearly 9% of total civilian employment. And millions more hope to own a business someday. Furthermore, over 47 million individuals reap the rewards of free enterprise through stock ownership in the vast number of companies listed on the U.S. stock exchanges. I can't help but believe that in the future we'll see in the United States and throughout the Western world an increasing trend toward the next logical step, employee ownership. It's a path that benefits a free people. 
So as always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.